Please join with me as I pray before we come to this passage. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us now as we give ourselves to engaging with your word. Please give us the energy at the end of the day to take to heart what you're saying to us. Uh, Help me by your spirit to preach it faithfully. Help us all to apply it to our lives and so glorify Jesus through being more conformed to his likeness. In his name I pray this. Amen. Uh, Most of us go through, I think, our Christian lives holding on to what can be referred to as acceptable sins. Uh, These particular sins are still sin, they're still dishonouring to Jesus, it's just that we have come to tolerate them in our lives. Uh, We tend to view our acceptable sins as small in comparison to perhaps all the other ills of society that we think are big and that we like to focus on. We tend to grow numb to our acceptable sins. They rarely scare us, rarely convict us, rarely grieve our souls. Our acceptable sins often go unchecked, unchanged, uh, because we just don't think they're that serious. Uh, One thing that I think often goes into the acceptable sin box is idleness. Uh, That tendency to be kind of a bit lazy, to avoid work, avoid being productive in life. Idleness, I think, is one of those things uh, where we just kind of think, it's not that great. Not that serious either, though. Not the kind of thing we'd sort of set up an accountability group for with a couple of other Christians. But what is so striking about the passage that we just heard read uh, is just how seriously Paul takes the sin of idleness. Uh, Five times he uses the language of command, obey, to get his message across. Twice he invokes the authoritative name of Jesus In fact, Paul thinks it's so cancerous to the community, the Christian community, that he twice tells believers to stay away from those who are idle. Uh, Tonight, Jesus, through his apostle Paul, is telling you that you need to take idleness seriously. Out of love for us, Jesus is calling us to glorify him with our day jobs, with our attitudes to work. And as the one who died for us, who saved us, and who now lovingly rules us, uh, we ought to start listening uh, to Jesus when he confronts an acceptable sin like this. Uh, So what we'll do is consider what Paul says about the idol believers in the Thessalonian church, and then I want to spend some time at the end just thinking through how we can apply some of these principles to our lives. As Christians. So uh, let's first recap, though, where we've been in the letter, the second letter to the Thessalonian church. For the past two chapters, Paul has been dealing with really two groups of people who were disturbing this community of early believers the persecutors, chapter one, and the false teachers in chapter two. Uh, Now, by the time he gets to this last chapter, chapter three, you might expect him to almost have a note of pessimism about their future in light of the challenges they're facing. But actually, actually, it's the opposite. Paul's full of confident hope in what the Lord will keep on doing in and through these believers. Just look at verses 1 to 5. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. 
but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. So despite the real challenge of persecution and false teaching, Paul had confidence in the faithful God to help these believers stand firm. As we'll see, it's this same confidence in God that Paul has when he addresses a third group of people causing more issues for this church. The third group, known as the idlers. Now, why was there idleness in the church in Thessalonica? Uh, some commentators believe it was a result of poor theology. Uh, the idea being that some had kind of bought into the message of the false teachers back in chapter 2, uh, who were saying that Jesus was either just about to return or possibly had already returned, uh, and therefore they basically figured, well, why bother slaving away at my job if Jesus is about to return and take me to his eternal kingdom? Now, that could be the case, but Paul never actually directly makes that link. And while poor theology shapes poor conduct often, it's equally true that poor conduct can exist without poor theology. See, sinners don't need dodgy teaching to be sinful. Sometimes we're just lazy. Uh, But regardless of the specific reason here, Paul's words about idleness uh, remain vitally important for us today. So let's think about the first word Paul has about idleness for the church as a whole. Look with me at verse 6. Uh, now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Keep away from the idle. That kind of sounds a bit extreme. I mean, we might get it if Paul had said maybe, keep away from every brother and sister who's a racist or who's a criminal or maybe even who's a gossip but idle. I mean, isn't that sort of person just a kind of harmless couch potato? Now, we're going to think a little bit more about Paul's command to keep away uh, when we get to the similar statement in verse 14. But right now, uh, we simply just need to get our heads around why God takes idleness so seriously. Or to put it positively, why does God think work is such a good thing? Well, there are four major biblical reasons why God thinks work is good. I'll run them through now. Uh, God thinks work is good because it's something that we were created to do. At the beginning of creation, in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden to work it and to watch over it. See, even before sin comes into the picture... Work was given by God as a good gift. The curse of sin means that work is no longer easy, but it doesn't mean that it's no longer good. But second, it's good because it brings glory to God. Uh, Giving ourselves to diligent, faithful labor is a big way we honor the Lord in our daily lives. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Your faithful daily labor brings glory to your master, Jesus. But three, it's good because it loves your neighbor. 
Working to kind of help others, drawing an income for yourself, allows you to contribute to the needs of others, particularly those entrusted to your immediate care in your household. And this is vitally important, so much so that Paul will actually say to the believers in 1 Timothy, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Working loves your neighbour. But finally, uh, work is good because it's a gospel witness to the watching world around us. It shows the transformative nature of the gospel. It gives the world a chance to see that followers of Jesus take being productive members of society seriously, and they respect that. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonian believers back in his first letter to actually get busy and work with their hands. Find jobs. Do something productive. He says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. You see, when we embrace a lifestyle of idleness... All those good things get turned on their head. We start rejecting God's kind of creational gift to us. We're not giving him glory or loving our neighbor as we should be. We're destroying the witness of Jesus' transformative gospel. Idleness displeases God, but faithful labor pleases him. And that's why Paul reminds the the believers of the tradition, verse 6, that that hard-working lifestyle that he modelled to them while he was with them. Look at verses 7 to 9. Read them with me in your Bibles. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we laboured and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have a right to support, but we, did, uh, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. See, Paul had practiced what he's preaching here. Like any other gospel worker, he had the right to receive financial support for his ministry, but he'd actually refused that right. Instead, he had added a part-time job to his preaching ministry to kind of cover the costs while there. And we know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul worked as a tent maker in Corinth. So maybe he picked up a bit of tent work here as well in Thessalonica. You can kind of imagine him, right? Teaching these new believers during the day, then having a rest, then heading to the workshop to do a late shift every other night. Paul could not be accused of being a moocher the kind of person who just always happens to pop up around dinner time, he says, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge, verse 8. And Paul says he did this so that the church, which we know uh, from 2 Corinthians was quite poor, uh, so that that church would not be burdened. But he also did it to give them a real-life example of a Christ-like attitude to work and productivity. Idleness has no place in the Christian community, says Paul, and that's why he gave them the rule of verse 10. If anyone isn't willing to work, 
he should not eat. Now, notice what that rule isn't saying. That rule isn't saying if anyone isn't able to work, he should not eat. See, this message isn't directed to the willing but unable. It's directed to the able but unwilling. You see, there are all sorts of reasons why some people are unable to work a regular job, either full-time or part-time. Chronic illness, work injury, trauma, a full-time student, the elderly. See, they're not who Paul is talking about here. It's the able-bodied person who could work, who could help out around the house or in the community or in their church, but simply chooses not to. Paul wants that person not to be enabled to keep on sinning. In fact, I think he wants them to be confronted by the uncomfortable reality that they are the slacker of Proverbs chapter 6, if you know that proverb. I'll read it for you. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms that idleness has no place in the community of Jesus' people. So that's his word to the church as a whole. But in verses 11 to 12, Paul kind of narrows his focus and speaks directly to the kind of small group of idlers themselves, which leads us to our second point, a word to the idol. Now, it's never, it's never pleasant to get called out for having a bad work ethic. I know this because it happened to me once. I remember being on a placement at a children's eye hospital in the U.S., when I was training to be an orthoptist, a bit like an optometrist. Now, I did not like this placement. I found the work draining and much more difficult than I had done in Australia. And so it wasn't long before my poor attitude to work translated into my poor behaviour at work. I'd linger between seeing patients. I'd get chatting to the admin staff at the front desk to fill in extra time. And if I saw the head doctor, the ophthalmologist, coming my way, I'd try and look busy. Uh, this is not a moment in my life I was, I'm proud of. And as it so happened that the, ed, the head ophthalmologist wasn't too impressed with it either when he kind of caught wind of what I was doing. I still remember it. It's ingrained in my mind him walking down the corridor, coming up to my face and saying to me, I love how you pretend to work. And with that, he walked off. In that moment, I just felt so ashamed, so humbled and just so willing to change and work hard from that point forward. Uh, Sometimes we need an honest and direct word to give us the wake-up call we need. And that's what Paul gives to this group of idlers when he starts speaking to them in verses 11 to 12. Have a look at uh, those verses with me. For we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, but busybodies. 
Now we command and extort, extort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. See, like the ophthalmologist, Paul calls it how he sees it. Some of you guys are idle. You're not busy, you're busy bodies. See, the more idle time a person has, the more chance for meddling and mischief. Now, this is basically what that awful TV series, Big Brother, depends on. You put a bunch of people in a house, you give them nothing to do, and then you watch with fascination as they meddle in each other's lives and business. Idleness might create popular TV content, but it actually creates a perverse church community. So what is Paul's command or solution to the idol? Basically, it's get a job, keep out of trouble, and pay your own bills. Uh, The idea of working quietly really kind of stands in contrast to being a loudmouth, idle meddler. And notice it's actually really not Paul's solution or Paul's command, is it? It's what the Lord Jesus commands. Paul says, uh, we command and exhort by the Lord Jesus. Sometimes growing in spiritual maturity, doing what Jesus says, can be as simple as applying for a job on seek.com. That's what Paul says to the idle minority. But to the faithful majority in the church, he says in verse 13, but as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Now in the context, I take the doing good there to mean working faithfully in their different jobs, their different roles and responsibilities in their life. Keep up the good work through your regular work. Don't let anyone tell you your shelf stacking at the supermarket is less than impressive. It's a great thing in God's eyes. Oh, your office job might be a bit boring, but keep at it. Your your diligent work in the home, a good thing. It all glorifies Jesus, loves your neighbor, serves as a great gospel witness. Don't grow weary in doing good. No more mooching, no more meddling. It's time to do some honest work. That's Paul's word to the idol. But now Paul narrows his focus even more. Now he deals with an even kind of smaller group of individuals who may simply refuse to listen to this rebuke. And that's what we'll look at now. Word about the disobedient, those who will not obey. Now, I'm sure you've heard the expression, kind of hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. Uh, There's a little bit, I think, of that going on in Paul's final comments here. He's hoping for the best, but kind of also preparing this church for the worst. Now, it must be said that Paul's hope here is more than just wishful thinking. He's confident that God will actually help his people in this area, verse 4. But at the same time, Paul knows that sin is not always easily rooted out from a church community. There may well be one or two who just simply refuse to give up their idle lifestyle. If that happens, says Paul, you need to be prepared for it. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, verse 14, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
Uh, church discipline, which I think is a kind of what's going on in these verses, that's never going to be pleasant. But it will sometimes be necessary. And I think there are three big principles that come out of Paul's words here, his instructions that should guide our response as a church if we ever find ourselves in a similar situation. Uh, The first is that our response in such a moment has to be just. Uh, The discipline described here must follow prior instruction and warning. It would be wrong to publicly discipline someone who has been never been clearly taught or privately warned. Jesus himself in Matthew 18 tells us that there are a few steps before this, actually, where people are addressing the issue with the person in question. But the sense in verse 14 is that these are people who kind of have heard Jesus' clear teaching and they've just refused to obey uh, the call to repent. But second, our response in such circumstances must be protective, safeguarding the well-being of other believers in the church. Now, the only other time Paul tells a congregation not to associate with someone as part of a kind of church discipline process is when he's dealing with the sexually immoral man of 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 5. And part of his reasoning there is that sin actually easily spreads to others and continues to do damage in a community if it's left unchecked. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole bunch of dough, batch of dough? Uh, That's a proverb of Paul's day that really refers to the way others can be led into sin and therefore more people negatively impacted. I mean, he's already mentioned a couple of the destructive ways that it's been affecting the church, mooching, meddling, He doesn't want that to continue. But third, our response must be restorative, aiming for the good of the individual involved. And that is really the purpose, I think, of the shame mentioned in verse 14. Uh, Shame is never pleasant, and sometimes it's wrongly placed on us by those who have perhaps abused or used us. But sometimes shame does serve as a helpful emotion, almost like a kind of fire alarm in our hearts, giving us a wake-up call that we kind of need to perhaps have, telling us something in our lives isn't right, it's out of kilter, it needs to change. And that's the sense I think Paul is going with here. He is concerned for the individual. He wants them to wake up to their sin. That's why he tells the congregation, actually, not to treat them like an enemy, but as a brother. He's working for their good. There is to be no loathing of this individual, no kind of avoiding eye contact if you see him at the shops. Uh, You would think of them like a sibling that you are still connected and committed to in Christ, despite the mess of the moment. And so while Paul does say that there will be some uh, pullback relationally, Don't associate with them. He actually doesn't call for complete silent treatment from them. Believers are still to speak to them, but it has a focus of loving warning. Uh, James sort of says something similar in the last chapter of his book, verses 19 
up to 20 in chapter 5. He says, My brothers and sisters, if any of you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. See, Paul's words here in 2 Thessalonians show us that when the church has to call out persistent sin, whether it's idleness or something else, we must do so in a just way that protects the body of believers and serves the good of the individual. Paul is telling us in this final chapter of 2 Thessalonians that we cannot treat idleness as an acceptable sin in our lives. And we need this word because I think we live in a culture that is pretty coloured by a background level of idleness. Uh, Research conducted just this year revealed the daily amount of media, you probably can't see anything on that screen, that's okay, Um, revealed the daily amount of media that the average Australian aged 16 to 64 consumes each day. Among a number of findings, uh, they included three and a half hours of TV, one and three quarter hours on social media, and close to an hour on video games. The average adult Aussie likely has a part-time or a full-time job, but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of idle time on our hands. So what can we do to push back against a prevailing culture like that and live in obedience to God's word here? Now, I just want to finish by suggesting five brief points of application that I'll pose as a question to ask ourselves. First, is my heart led or governed by my hardworking Lord? See, before... Paul starts calling believers to work with their hands. He first tells them to think about their hearts. And you see that back in in verse 5, before he starts his section on idleness, he says, may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and to Christ's endurance. You see, Paul knows that the work of our hands ultimately flow from the conviction of our hearts. We need to know God's immeasurable love for us. We need to ask God to help us see Christ's endurance, his hard work on our behalf. We need to remember that Christ himself worked faithfully with his hands, probably for a number of years, toiling as a carpenter. We need to see the way he was faithful to his greater job that he'd been given by his father to die for sinners. At no point did Christ slack off from his work. When he was tempted by Satan at the beginning of his public ministry, when he was tempted by Satan to take the easy road, he rejected that and he kept working hard. When the crowds who had once praised him suddenly started turning against him, he didn't quit, he kept working hard. When he prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking whether it was possible to avoid uh, the cross, he submitted himself to his father's will and did what he did not want to do. Jesus worked hard for you, and you reap the benefits of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in him. 
See, what will lead you to work hard in service for Christ? Applying for a job, doing the dishes, mowing your lawns. It's actually knowing that Christ first worked hard in service for you. So is my heart being led by my hardworking Lord? Second question, am I getting the diagnosis correct? See, when it comes to a discussion about idleness, it's actually important not to misdiagnose the problem. Some things in the Christian life that we perceive to be spiritual problems are actually, in fact, physical. And that may be the case for some of you. You might be thinking that you lack a whole bunch of productivity in life, that you lack that get up and go to get jobs done around the home or take on more work. This may not necessarily be due to the fact you're lazy. It may be that you have something like a thyroid problem or you're not eating right or you're not simply getting enough sleep. Uh, John Piper speaks of a time in his ministry where he was just marked by a lot of weariness and it just turned out that he had a super underactive thyroid He says, no amount of reading my Bible was going to fix that issue. He just needed some medical treatment. See, remember, Paul uh, Paul says anyone who isn't willing to work, not isn't able. Uh, Sometimes we need to do a bit more reflection and investigation to figure out which camp we're in. Uh, Third question that we need to ask is, do I have the right understanding of work? One of the missteps I think we can make with applying this passage is simply to think that if I have a paid job, I'm all good to go here. This passage doesn't apply to me. Now, at one level, paid work is good, and it's something that Paul does address here, but he actually does more than just advocate for people to provide for themselves. He sets forth a lifestyle of fruitful productivity that extends beyond paid employment. Uh, There's a classic moment in The Simpsons when Homer is reminiscing about his life as a parent of smaller children. And Homer, who had a full-time job, says this, It's not easy to juggle a pregnant wife and a troubled child, but somehow I managed to fit in eight hours of TV a day. You see, it's possible to have a paid job and still struggle with an idle lifestyle. One that neglects the fruitful productivity that other areas of life demand. We need a bigger view of work often, if we're going to rightly understand this passage. You see, work takes place in our service at church, our involvement in our local community, through our chores at home. In fact, Paul certainly understood the household to be a context for work. That's why he exhorts the younger women in his day to be diligent working in their homes, he says in Titus. Uh, Paul laboured so that he would not be a burden to the Thessalonians. So where outside your paid job might your idle behaviour be placing a burden on others? Are you refusing to do the dishes and so leaving that burden to your housemates or your spouse? Are you waiting for someone else to mow the lawns? I remember the days of share house living when the pile of recycling wedged between our fridge and our wall 
was literally as tall as I was. Every time one of us carefully balanced another milk carton on top of that pile, we were choosing sinful idleness, laziness over God-honoring work. Paul's words here set forth an ethic that actually extends beyond the paid job into the labors of our home, our church, our community. Fourth, am I allowing the perfect to be the enemy of the good? Is your pursuit of the perfect or even pretty good job preventing you from working any job? Uh, See, there may come a time in your life where sometimes the right choice is to just get a job rather than wait for the perfect job. Uh, We know of a man who had completed a doctorate in the field of science at a university but struggled to land a job in his field. Now, he could have chosen to keep waiting around for the perfect job and it would, I guess, be easy to feel he was entitled to a, a very good job. But this guy instead chose to get a job, in the meantime, working at just a local coal, stacking shelves. He didn't see that as beneath him, but beneficial for him. See, that is the kind of attitude that that obeys the call to work quietly and provide for oneself. Jesus wants to see that kind of attitude in all of us. Finally, am I asking God to change me? Uh, What bookends... Paul's words on idleness is really his confident hope in God to help the Thessalonians to live his way. You see it there. The Lord is faithful, verse 3. We have confidence in the Lord, verse 4. The grace of Jesus Christ be with you, verse 18. God is not only helping us to see the issue of idleness in our lives, he's telling us to come to him for help to change. So if you think you need help in this area, then talk to God about it. Repent of where you need, where you think you've been idle. Thank God that Christ has atoned for that sin also. Ask him to make you more like your saviour in this area. Ask him to help you see the ways in which you, in your circumstances, with your capacities, can give yourself to faithful labor that glorifies God, loves your neighbor, and serves as a witness to the world around you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I'm going to close in prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word tonight. How We pray along with Paul that you would direct our hearts to your love and Christ's endurance. May our hearts be transformed by our hardworking Lord who suffered unto death for us. May we, out of thankfulness, now give ourselves to the kind of lives that please Jesus. May we be diligent and faithful in our labours. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.